0: J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.
1: The United States officially declaring Russia has committed war crimes in Ukraine. The lead starts right now. Apartment buildings, a theater sheltering hundreds of innocent civilians, a maternity and children's hospital. These are just some of the targets of Russian strikes, turning Ukrainian neighborhoods into dust. President Biden about to land in Brussels for what could be some of the most important meetings of his presidency. A face-to-face sit-down with key allies aimed at ratcheting up the pressure on Vladimir Putin. And a handful of Republican senators go all in on attacking Judge Katanji Brown-Jackson, accusing her of being soft on crime as she tries to land a seat on the Supreme Court.
2: This is CNN Breaking News.
1: Welcome to The Lead. I'm Pamela Brown in for Jake Tapper. And we begin with breaking news in our world lead and the Biden administration formally accusing Russian forces of committing war crimes after evidence mounting daily before our eyes. A theater in Mariupol with the word children spelled out in large letters, on two sides visible from the air. Yet with 1,200 women and children inside, Ukrainian officials say Russia dropped a bomb on that building. And just today, Russian strikes again, destroying civilian areas. Ukraine's health minister begged for more body armor, saying six medics had been killed by Russian forces And 58 ambulances have been fired upon. And in southern Ukraine, new video shows cruise missiles launched off the coast of Crimea, bombarding a key port in Ukraine. A new video from a drone shows what's left of Mariupol. This was once a neighborhood. Now, much of it charred by fire, as you see. I want to bring in CNN's Sam Kiley. He is in Kiev. Sam, despite Russia's aggression, Ukrainians have made gains near the capital city there. Is there a sense of how long that may last?
2: I think that's the absolutely key issue, Pam. The Ukrainians have now, more or less for about the last 10 days, been trying to conduct a counteroffensive to try to push back Russian forces, particularly in the north and west of the country. And they claim, and there's some evidence to support, they claim that they've had a degree of success. So uh, today, for example, they claim that they had captured more than 80% of the suburb of uh, Pin. Now, you'll recall, that was the northwestern suburb where there were so many tragic images of refugees fleeing the Russian onslaught, fleeing the Russian invasion across a a destroyed bridge, uh, across a river, very precarious crossings. And of course, the tragic death, uh, among others, of a whole family of four in a Russian mortar attack. Now, the Uh, Russians are being pushed back, according to the Ukrainians. They're being helped by flooding of the Erpin River, which is making combat operations for the Russians harder. And I have to say, it's been a ferocious fight. We're a good 10 miles from that location, and we can hear it. We can hear the bombardment, no doubt going in both directions. can even hear uh, some small arms fire. A very ferocious fight is going on, 80 percent of that town recaptured according to the police have also put out video of themselves patrolling but of course this could go the other way at any time but makariv another town in the west much further west uh, down a crucial road out of the city to the west uh, has also captured according to the ukrainians yesterday the ukrainians essentially saying they're trying to set up a series of defensive lines to prevent the russians coming in but the key issue is can they hold their lines against not just the Russians, but the Belarusians if they come as may be anticipated by certainly Western analysts and here in Ukraine, uh, military people really concerned that if Belarus joins this war, that may tip the balance in terms of numbers and firepower and make Kyiv vulnerable once again, Pam.
1: Yeah. All right. So we'll continue to follow that question. Can they hold? And Sam, a new estimate from NATO today about Russian losses may help explain how Ukrainians have been able to make these advances near Kyiv.
2: Yeah, so these Russian losses figures have come from uh, NATO officials. Uh, they are reflecting basically on the Ukrainian claims uh, of having killed uh, some fourteen to 15,000. That's the top end of the uh, NATO estimate. The lower end is about 7,000. And then they, there's a formula where you multiply by two or three Uh, the numbers of killed to estimate the numbers of wounded and captured. So that would take up to 30 or 40,000. If 30 or 40,000 Russians have been taken off the battlefield as a consequence of Vladimir Putin's invasion, that's a total force of 190,000 were gathered for the invasion. A lot of those people would be logistics troops. Uh, This would be a major blow indeed to the Russians. They've already lost uh, five generals. So there's some evidence that they are really getting Hammered here and there, but they do have more men and more weapons to draw on. Pam?
1: All right, Sam, Kylie, and Kiev, thank you so much, Sam. New video shows a closer look at some of the destruction in Mariupol. A man says a Russian strike is to blame for this building on fire that destroyed a giant steel factory. And another video shows the aftermath of that fire, all that machinery destroyed along with much of this major city in southeastern Ukraine. I want to bring in Maxime Borodin. He is the deputy city council in Mariupol, and he's currently in western Ukraine. First off, I, I just want to know, how are you doing? I, I can't imagine how it must feel to know what has happened to your your city.
3: It's, it's terrible. Every, every, every photo, every video, uh, it's, it's totally terrible, because this, this is uh, not looks like our city, which uh, it will... Uh, it would it, it be about uh, three weeks ago. It was a prosperous city with uh, great streets, with new buildings, uh, new, new redesign of parks and uh, all of that. Now it's totally ruined and uh, the most problem, not uh, even the buildings. The most problem, uh, a lot of the c- citizens, about, I think, uh, two, two hundreds of thousands are still in the city. And their in the, their situation is like hostages because Russians won't uh, uh, let the humanitarian convoy uh, go into the Mariupol. They stop it in Berdiansk, uh, and for next uh, for last two weeks they don't uh, um, pass pass it. So it's uh, a great problem, and uh, the situation is so terrible that some people now uh, going uh, out of the city by foot. It's about uh, 80 80, uh, kilometers from uh, Mariupol to Berdansk, but they go anyway under the shelling, in in the cold, because uh, they don't have food, they don't have water, there are no electricity and cell uh, connection so Mariupol now is in total catastrophic situation and all world need to uh, get act now to help de Mariupol. Because if they didn't, uh, it uh, will be not about uh, thousands of uh, dead, it's about hundreds of thousands of dead.
1: Just innocent people, just the depths of desperation, what you were describing there, those still trying to flee the city. Your country's president, Vladimir Zelensky, said despite your city being reduced to ashes, he refused to surrender Mariupol to Russia. How do you hold on to your city when Putin appears to have the advantage and intent on taking it over?
3: It's hard to say. We understand even if uh, this city was surrendered, uh, there are no peace after that. Because in uh, near villages, which Russians already taken, they start to take men from uh, civil men and get it to the so-called DPR army. So there are no um, peace after the surrender. It's only war continuous and more uh, casualties it will be. So it's only way to uh, help Mariupol citizens is uh, to deblocate Mariupol with the help of our allies. There are no any other options. It's, it's pity, but it's not working like uh, with Putin is to surrender.
1: All right, Maxime Borodin, thank you again for coming on and sharing your story. We wish you the best. Thank you. Well, they could be some of the most important meetings of his presidency so far. A live look at Brussels, where President Biden is about to touch down with a warning for America's allies. And then devastating storms stare through the South, picking up and tossing school buses and houses like they're toys. Live pictures here of Air Force One in Brussels. And as President Biden arrives, his administration is formally declaring that Russian forces have committed war crimes. That ahead of President Biden's high stakes meetings with world leaders that start tomorrow. CNN's Caitlin Collins is in Brussels with what's at stake for Biden as NATO allies try to pressure Putin to end his invasion.
4: President Biden arriving in Brussels as he seeks to ratchet up the pressure on Russia.
5: I'm going to say all I have to say. I'm going to say when I get there.
4: Biden set for a full day of urgent talks with critical allies as he delivers new warnings about Russia potentially using chemical weapons in Ukraine.
6: How high is that threat? I think it's a real threat.
4: After his meetings, Biden is planning to announce new sanctions on hundreds of Russian lawmakers
3: we
6: a
7: and
4: new efforts to crack down on attempts to evade existing ones.
7: That announcement will focus not just on adding new sanctions, but on ensuring that there is joint effort to crack down on inv- evasion, on sanctions busting, on any attempt by any country uh, to help Russia basically undermine, weaken... Uh, or get around the sanctions.
4: Biden could also announce he's sending more U.S. troops to Eastern Europe to reassure NATO allies after the Pentagon presented him with options before he departed Washington.
7: That is something the president will discuss with his allies uh, at the NATO summit on Thursday.
4: The head of NATO says he expects the alliance to boost its presence.
8: With major increases to our forces in the eastern part of the alliance, on land, in the air, and at sea.
4: Ahead of his address to NATO leaders, Ukrainian President Zelensky has continued his appeals to other nations for more assistance. CNN has learned that the first deliveries of the $800 million in new military aid from the U.S. have started to arrive in
9: Ukraine. We have seen indications that uh, the Ukrainians are going a bit more on the offense now. They have been defending uh, very smartly. Uh, very nimbly, very creatively.
4: Now, Pam, as you see, President Biden has just landed here in Brussels. He's going to be greeted by Belgium's prime minister. He's going to his hotel for the night. And then tomorrow starts that full day of very intensive meetings with allies to talk about what's happening in Ukraine. Of course, this comes as the national security advisor told reporters on the trip here that there has been this intense back and forth between the United States and European allies over their dependence on Russian energy. Talking, of course, about the concerns that they have given the leverage that it gives Russia and how to reduce that dependence on that energy. That is expected to also be a substantial topic during these meetings tomorrow. And of course, President Biden will hold a press conference tomorrow night where he will update reporters on everything that has happened in this long
1: day of meetings. Pamela. All right. Caitlin Collins, live for us from Brussels. Thanks so much, Caitlin. Really rare and revealing moment. CNN gets exclusive access to the U.S. readout of a meeting with a Russian general where Pentagon officials say he got emotional when asked about his family ties to Ukraine. That's next. Taking a uh, live look here at President Biden on the tarmac in Brussels, Belgium. He is there for an emergency summit with NATO. He'll be meeting with some key allies soon. And saying in our world lead, a CNN-exclusive and inside look at a Russian military leader getting unusually emotional while meeting with U.S. military officials last week according to a readout of the encounter obtained by CNN. In the document, U.S. officials describe what they viewed as a revealing moment from a Russian general. And as CNN's Barbara Starr reports, defense officials say this could hint at growing morale problems inside Putin's armed
6: forces. With Russia's war in Ukraine stalled, and the U.S. saying morale is a problem for Russian forces, CNN has learned of a rare meeting in Moscow between U.S. and Russian military officials, which according to a U.S. readout of the meeting, contained a, quote, revealing moment from Russian Major General Yevgeny Ilin, a general with extensive experience dealing with Americans. As the meeting ended, the readout says an attaché on the U.S. side casually asked about Aline's family roots in Ukraine. According to the readout, the U.S. officials said the general's stoic demeanor suddenly became flushed and agitated. Aline replied he was born in Ukraine and went to school in Donetsk and then said, according to the readout, the situation in Ukraine is tragic and I am very depressed over it. Before walking out, without shaking hands. The attaché wrote in the readout, the fire in his eyes and flustered demeanor left a chill down the spine. Meetings with Russian officials are typically scripted, but the two attachés said they had never witnessed such an outburst by Russian counterparts at an official meeting. The readout by the officials concludes, at the very least, it is clear that morale problems among Russian forces are not limited to frontline troops. The readout describes only the impressions of the U.S. officials and does not definitively explain Eline's behavior. Such readouts are typically too sensitive to be made public.
7: Readouts of this type are important because they give us an insight, a potential insight into uh, what the Russians are really thinking. But it also shows that there is some kind of a morale problem within the Russian hierarchy, and it extends possibly all the way up to the top.
6: The Russian Ministry of Defense did not respond to a CNN request for comment on the meeting or the readout. But the Kremlin has denied reports of low morale among its forces in Ukraine.
10: You would probably uh, have to doubt this information.
8: You have to doubt it
10: and you have to think twice whether it is uh, true or not.
6: As Russia faces stiff resistance from Ukrainian forces, if the Americans are correct and morale is an issue, it's a challenge the Russians can ill afford.
9: We've seen increasing indications that morale and unit cohesion is a problem. And yes, that absolutely translates into potential military effectiveness issues.
6: So one Russian general flushed and agitated According to the Americans, just another mystery about what really may be going on behind Kremlin walls. Pamela? Barbara Starr at the Pentagon with this exclusive. Thanks so much.
1: And let's discuss with CNN military analyst and retired Army Major General James Spider Marks. Hi, General. So this is clearly a rare and revealing look at the sensitive meeting between Russian and U.S. military officials that Barbara just laid out what is your reaction to it? What does it say to you about morale in the Russian military right now?
5: Well, what it, on several levels, what it tells you is that our incredible foreign area officers that are in the attache business are really doing their job effectively. I mean, we've got this war going on in Ukraine, yet you have U.S. military personnel dealing with their Russian counterparts on a real-time basis to, to elicit this type of information. So that's good news, number one. Number two is it tells you very distinctly that the Russians have a very deep problem. I mean, the we are getting from reports from the field, from your contributors and your anchors on the field, which, again, are phenomenal, and then reports that are coming out from other sources really indicate that the Russian forces at the troop level, at the soldier level, are really having some very difficult times understanding what their purpose is. You know, the Russian military deals in tasks. This is what I want you to do. The U.S. military and our NATO partners deal with tasks and purpose. Why I want you to do it. The Russian soldiers don't have that. And we've seen some incredible videos. You know, some of those Russian troops driving into a a gasoline station and then ransacking the place because they don't have their own chow. You know, they're, they're probably walking away with food that they can't get from their own logistics supply. That's a significant problem.
1: Yeah, it's a big reason why this invasion clearly hasn't gone according to plan for Russia. I mean, U.S. officials say they've seen indications that some Russian soldiers are suffering from frostbite due to lack of cold-weather gear. They're dealing with shortages of food, food, as you pointed out, fuel, other logistics problems. I mean, tell us a little bit more about that. Why do you think that is? I mean, clearly, given what we knew leading up to this invasion, this had been in the works for uh, for a while by Vladimir Putin and those around him. How can this be?
5: Yeah, I think really two things. First of all, hubris. I think Putin thought this was going to be a cakewalk, 48 hours. Um I don't need a senior command and control, you know, theater commander because I'm going to go take Kyiv, it's going to take me a couple of days, Kharkiv, you're going to fall immediately, and then down south we'll get Mariupol and Kherson and eventually we'll waltz our way over to Odessa. I mean, that's hubris, that's a misunderstanding a strategic miscalculation that's incredibly huge, and Putin is in the intel business, and he totally blew it. I mean, that's a, that's phenomenal. And then the second thing is that as a result of that, these soldiers came ill-prepared for any of that. They thought they'd be living off, they'd get into Kiev, and they'd immediately be welcomed, and they'd have an opportunity to be replenished in a short amount of time. That has been totally exposed, and these Russian soldiers—I know—I've been cold, I've been hungry, I've been wet, and I've been shot at, and I got to tell you, that is an incredible lack of leadership when you can't unscrew and loosen those problems and get support to your frontline troops to get them to do the mission and to understand why you're doing it. I mean, it's a total collapse of the Russian military.
1: Yeah, to understand why you're doing it, like you said, that sense of purpose clearly is missing. Uh, Major General Marks, thank you so much. Thank you, Pam. Judge Katanji Brown Jackson facing another round of grilling from senators in her confirmation hearing. Why one Democrat says some of the questions were, quote, beyond the pale. Topping our politics lead, another round of heated questioning at the confirmation hearing for the president's Supreme Court nominee. As Jessica Schneider reports, Judge Katanji Brown Jackson has been fielding at times scathing scrutiny. Over her record. Sorry. Good morning, Senator. As the
11: questioning of Supreme Court nominee Katanji Brown Jackson winds down, Republicans seem to be ramping up their criticisms of Jackson's judicial record. Her sentencing decisions and child pornography cases continue to be a flashpoint. Senator Lindsey Graham accusing her of giving offenders supervision instead of jail time.
9: You think it is a bigger deterrent to take somebody who's on a computer? looking at sexual images of children in the most disgusted way is to supervise their computer habits versus putting them in jail?
12: No, Senator, I didn't say versus. That's exactly what you said. Senator, I wasn't talking about um, versus.
9: You just said you thought it was a deterrent to supervise them. I don't think it's a deterrent. I think the deterrent is putting them in jail. Congress
12: has directed courts to consider various means of achieving deterrence. One of them, as you've said, is incarceration. Another, as I tried to mention, was substantial periods of supervision once the
9: person. So if I could. Maybe.
12: Democrat Patrick Leahy emerged from the hearing, telling reporters that Graham's
11: questioning went, quote, beyond the pale.
10: Lindsey Graham has gone twice the amount of
5: time that was allotted to him. He wouldn't let her answer, he kept interrupting her. And I couldn't help but think. Was this aimed for this hearing or aimed for a political campaign?
11: An in-depth CNN review shows Judge Jackson mostly followed common judicial sentencing practices in these child porn cases. And a group of retired federal judges, including two Republican appointees, sent a letter to the committee saying Jackson's record on sentencing is entirely consistent with decisions from judges around the country. But Republicans have not found that reasoning satisfactory continuing to press their belief that Jackson is, quote, soft on crime.
2: There's at least a level of empathy
13: that enters into your treatment of a defendant that some could view as a uh, uh, maybe beyond what some of us would be comfortable with with respect to administering
8: justice.
12: Nobody said to them, do you understand that there are children who will never have normal lives because you sold crack to their parents, and now they're in a vortex of addiction. Do you understand that, Mr. Defendant? Uh, I was the one in my sentencing practices who explained those things in an interest of furthering Congress's direction that we're supposed to be sentencing people So that they can ultimately be rehabilitated. And Judge Jackson continued to stress her near decade of experience as a federal judge. I approach cases from experience, from practice, and consistent with my constitutional obligations. And Judge Jackson made
11: some news of her own today. For the first time, she pledged that if confirmed, she will recuse herself from an affirmative action case involving Harvard that will be heard by the Supreme Court sometime in the fall. Jackson serves on Harvard's board of overseers and said she would recuse herself from any decision that that could be there that would question if she'd be able to fairly hear the case. And now we know that she will not. Pamela?
1: All right, Jessica, thanks so much. Let's discuss now with our panel I'm going to kick it off to you first here, Elliot Williams. So we just heard Jessica report on all of this. Republicans have hammered Judge Jackson on how she sentenced child pornography cases. Here's more from that heated exchange with Senator Graham this
9: morning. You think it is a bigger deterrent to take somebody who's on a computer looking at sexual images of children in the most disgusting way is to supervise their computer habits versus putting them in jail?
12: No, Senator, I didn't say versus. That's
9: exactly what you said. I think the best way to deter people from getting on a computer and viewing thousands and hundreds and over time maybe millions, the population as a whole, of children being exploited and abused every time somebody clicks on is to put their ass in jail, not supervise their computer usage.
12: Senator, I wasn't talking about... Um,
9: versus, you just said you thought it was a deterrent to supervise them. I don't think it's a deterrent.
7: What do you make of that line of questioning? Yeah, so he's really being reductive in talking about how defendants are sentenced. Because look, defendants can both get jail time and what's called supervised release, and he sort of made it sound that it was all or nothing, and that she, and that she was saying that necessarily, if a defendant wasn't put in jail, that she was uh, necessarily wanting to see them, um, uh, uh, you know, under supervision. Look, at the end of the day, Congress created rules for sentencing. Congress created guidelines that judges can follow, which she did in line with judges all the way across the country. If Senator Graham or anyone else in the Senate does not like that, they ought to change the federal sentencing guidelines and restrict what judges can do, but her sentencing is perfectly in line with what judges across the country like are 80%, doing. That's 80%, right? And and so Um, It's because it's child pornography and this is heinous, Mm -hmm. heinous conduct that gets in people's heads and really excites people. Then, yes, um, you know, it's sort of splashy at a hearing. But he's really only telling part of the story here. And there's very little to be gained from beating up a a judicial nominee about it.
14: That's exactly what they've done throughout the whole hearing. They've used these theatrics. They've used very explicit examples. They've interrupted her. I mean, that was not only an egregious example in terms of what you just pointed out from the law. But from the perspective of decorum, they said they wanted this to be a trial, a hearing where there was decorum. That went out the window. And I can tell you a lot of polling recently has shown women, particularly white women voters, are disgusted by the meanness they see in Washington. So I think viewers at home watching that exchange are going to be very disturbed. You saw her trying to answer the question. He cut her off. He was rude. He was ruffling his papers, wouldn't even give her the respect of looking her in the eye when she was trying to answer him. It was a complete theatrical presentation, all full of messaging opportunities for the GOP.
1: Right. I mean, the midterms, of course, coming right. up. So um, how much of it do you think is playing into this
14: that's, I think that's exactly what they were trying to do. I mean, I throughout this, there have been certain themes, crime, uh, critical race theory, and parental rights. We've heard these themes over and over abortion. and over again. And abortion. She did a very good job. I'm actually prepping a couple of people for hearings, other hearings. She did a good job of staying in her lane, as she said, and sticking to the matters that would be before her as a judge or that had come before her as a judge. Democrats are doing some messaging, too, to be honest. Yeah,
1: that that is true. Uh, We're seeing a lot of messaging on both sides. And to your point about um, staying in her lane, one area that uh, we're all listening for is what she would say about expanding the Supreme Court. That is the hot topic, right? Here's what she said. Here's her succinct answer yesterday.
12: In my view, judges should not be speaking to political issues um, and certainly not a nominee for uh, a a position on the Supreme Court. So I agree with with Justice Barrett.
1: So clearly declining to give an opinion on this. Adam White, I want to bring you in. How did her answer sit with you? I know that was something that you were looking for, how she would respond to that question.
8: I was looking for this question, and frankly, I was glad that Senator Sass returned to it today. I understand why the judge might not speak directly to the court packing issue. That's an issue first and foremost for Congress. But it's premised on a debate about the legitimacy of the court or the lack of legitimacy of the court in the eyes of its critics. The court's legitimacy is an important issue for our system and it's important to know how a judge sees the court's legitimacy. So I, I'm glad that Senator Sass and Judge Jackson spoke a little bit more to the legitimacy issue, even if she's not going to speak directly to the court packing question.
7: I guess no surprise, right, that right. she didn't speak more directly to it, Ellie. And, and frankly, and I take a slightly different view from you, although your Wall Street Journal piece on this uh, about it was, it was really, Adam um, White's, it's really, really good. But here's the thing, it's a political question at the end of right. the day. If Congress wants to create a Supreme Court of 13, 14, 15, 21 members, that's for Congress to decide. And it's almost like asking, like, like a friend of ours said, asking her to weigh on her March Madness bracket. it's Yes, it's a matter of great public interest, and yes, the answer that she gives might bother a lot of people, but it just doesn't matter.
8: Except this is a policy question where judges have unique insights. They know what it's like to work on a court with other judges. Uh, Judge Jackson now mostly serves on three judge panels, Taking the court from nine justices yeah. to, say, 11 or 13 really would change the dynamic on the court, and it would be interesting to hear her thoughts on it. But
14: that. again, the purpose of these hearings is to right. determine her fitness as a Supreme Court justice. So her role is to talk about the law, to answer the questions, but to recognize where we're trying to get into the lanes of political messaging, where it is, not, as she said, not something that would be within her peer review if she were to be a Supreme Court judge. And finally, I'd say, yeah. adding a black woman to the Supreme Court does add to the legitimacy of the court because more Americans look at the court and can say, that court looks like me, so maybe I'm gonna pay closer attention and be more interested in what they're doing.
7: One really really quick point, you know, um, the fact that we are talking about this is an indication of how successful Republicans have been in the hearing because what she has done is very succinctly and very successfully explained very complicated bodies of areas of law but also laid out her resume, background and experience in a really effective way. This court packing stuff is a distraction and getting away from really talking about the nominee.
1: All right, thank you so much Elliot Adam. Karen, welcome back. Thank Great you to see so much, you. Anne. Well, up next, CNN gets an up-close reminder of the human cost of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Back in our world,ly the human cost of Putin's brutal war is growing. As Ukraine's forces combat the invasion, they must also prepare to handle the increasing loss of life, even among Russia's military personnel. CNN's Ivan Watson reports on how Ukrainian authorities are responding to this challenge.
13: The Krasnopilsky military cemetery stands on a windswept field on the outskirts of the Ukrainian city of Dnipro. Rows of graves, a reminder of the stark reality Ukraine has lived with for years. All of these crosses mark the graves of Ukrainian soldiers killed fighting against Russian-backed separatists in the Donbass region since 2014. And these are new graves for Ukrainian soldiers killed since Russia invaded Ukraine on February 24th of this year,
10: a lot of Ukrainian guys. My guide here is
13: Mikhail Lysenka, deputy mayor of the city of Dnipro.
10: It's a Mikhailo. Yeah. A very, very young man. Very, very young man. Born in 1997. Yes, 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 yes. It's a very hard for us, for our city, and for people from Ukraine.
13: Nearby, rows of freshly dug graves that are, so far, empty. These are preparations in case there are more casualties. Yes. This deadly war presents a bizarre challenge to Ukrainian officials like Lysenka. On the one hand, they have to fortify city defenses and support the armed forces, and at the same time provide basic services like garbage disposal and running city buses.
10: If you look on our street, now we have a
13: clean street. How do you manage a city and fight a war at the same time? It's complicated, he says, but we have experience because this is the second war we've fought against Russia. The ground war has yet to reach the eastern city of Dnipro and its population of nearly one million inhabitants. Sometimes the city looks almost normal, though there is a strict 8 p.m. curfew. And instead of advertisements, billboards defiantly curse at the Russian military. A, these days, very city very officials very carry very guns. Present. This is because of the war that you have weapons.
10: Yes, yes, it's a normal for me. It's a normal for me.
13: Well, why is Ronald Reagan his portrait in your office? Yes,
10: because these guys, he is a very charismatical guys, and these guys destroyed Soviet Union. To see another side of the conflict, the deputy mayor brings
13: me here, to one of the city's morgues, to see a parked refrigerator truck.
10: And in this fridge, we have 350 uh, dead uh, Russian soldiers. In another morgue, we have 400. I cannot open this truck, because in this truck, this fridge truck, a lot of dead guys. I don't want to show his face, his legs, his uh, any pieces of body.
13: Lysenka says all of the dead
10: Russian soldiers
13: gathered from front lines across eastern Ukraine are stored here in Dnipro, before eventually being shipped to Kiev. Why is the Ukrainian government collecting the bodies of Russian soldiers?
10: We cannot leave this body on our fields, on our streets or another place. It's not normal.
13: As we speak,
10: All we hear something in, in the, the sky. This guy was innocent. What's that noise? I don't know what this is. What is this, Denis? A pilot? Go, 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 go. Where do we go? Where?
5: Where?
13: So just now, we had a little alert because there was a sound that Mikhail says was uh, sounded like a Russian drone. War dead and the threat of enemy drones. Part of everyday life now in eastern Ukraine. I should underscore that I cannot independently confirm the claims that there were the bodies of around 700 Russian soldiers in two different refrigerator trucks. The the trucks were not opened for us. You heard the reasons why there. But it is plausible when you hear the estimates of potential Russian casualties coming from the U.S. government, coming from the Ukrainian government. An additional issue, uh, a challenge for keeping the buses running on time here in Dnipro, the deputy mayor says, is because many of his bus drivers have volunteered to join the armed forces because they have previous experience driving tanks in the ukrainian armed forces and so the city bus uh buses have dropped to about 60 percent of their original mobility mm. pamela
1: it's interesting Ivan watson in Dnipro, ukraine thank you so much internationally the louisiana national guard has been activated to help clean up response from two powerful tornadoes in that state last night One person died near New Orleans. And new video from the CNN Air Drone shows some of the damage from the more destructive tornado. In some cases, homes were picked up and thrown across the street, while others went untouched. The National Weather Service says the other tornado stayed on the ground for more than 12 miles. In just 48 hours, there were nearly 60 reported tornadoes across five states. And the chances of tornadoes are lower today, but more regions could still see storms. So we'll be tracking that for you. And coming up, from refugee to America's first female secretary of state, a look at the life and legacy of Madeleine Albright. We want to remember a remarkable stateswoman for the U.S., Madeleine Albright, dying today from cancer. Born in Prague, she was the daughter of a diplomat. Her father was a Czechoslovakian ambassador to then Yugoslavia. The family fled to denver after the communist coup in 1948 albright went on to be the top diplomat for the united states and as the first female secretary of state albright promoted the expansion of nato eastward into the former soviet bloc she also pushed for the non-proliferation of nuclear weapons in the face of serious challenges much like the war in ukraine we witness today albright was an advocate for peace around the world She received the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 2012, the nation's highest civilian honor. Madeleine Albright was 84 years old. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room in Brussels.
0: Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together.